Good morning, church. It's a privilege to be with you today. If you are a uh, guest with us, or if this is your first time back with us in a while, I want to welcome you. We're so glad that you're here. My name is Chad Kinser. I serve as our downtown PM uh, campus pastor and one of our preaching pastors. And so I spend most of my time, most every Sunday, leading and preaching at our PM services here at the downtown campus. Uh, but a few Sundays a year, like this one, I get the privilege of kind of worshiping with our whole church. And so it's a, it's a real honor to share with you today uh, from God's Word. Also want to say a happy Memorial Day. Uh, so for those of you who have served in our military or a veteran, thank you so much for the way you have served our country. We are uh, tremendously blessed for the way you've defended religious freedom and we can worship today uh, in freedom. So if you've got a Bible, I want to uh, encourage you to open up to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, we are in week six of our kind of journey through the Ten Commandments. Uh, And I hope this has been a a good series for you. I hope it's been helpful. I know for me, my faith has certainly been nourished as we've looked at this text that is so familiar uh, to many of us from our background, either in church or just kind of living life kind of naturally. You've heard the Ten Commandments. Uh, But this is more than a text that is locked somewhere thousands of years in the past uh, that is a dead word. This is, as we've seen over the last few weeks, a living and active word that God has given to us as his people to shape us for our worship, to shape us for uh, our life together with him every bit as much today as it was given to Israel uh, thousands, years ago. This was, thousands of years ago. This is a, a living text. And so as we hit the sixth command today... Uh, we're sort of now into the second uh, section of the Ten Commandments as they're structured. So the first four commandments deal primarily with our relationship with God, how it is that we're responding to God. So you think about those first four commandments, right? Commandment one, uh, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment two, have no graven images, have no carved images. Commandment three, uh, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Commandment four, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. All of those first four commands deal primarily with our relationship to God. And then the last six commands deal then primarily with our relationships with one another. How it is that we should see and to treat and to deal with one another. And as we hop into this sort of second section now over the next few weeks, I don't want you to see these commands separate from the first four. Because what's happening is that the last six commands are rooted in and they flow out of the first four. And so to say it this way, the way that we see and treat one another is rooted in and it flows out of how we see and understand and what we believe about God. What we believe about God determines then how we see and understand and carry out our lives together. And so that's exactly what we're hitting today uh, in this sixth commandment. And so I want to begin our time together. I want to establish our time uh, as we jump in today, just by reading this command, uh, and then we'll jump on in from there. So if you've got a Bible, again, Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen behind me. And so Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, the word of Christ speaks to us like this. You shall not murder. Real short, real sweet, right? We love these Bible verses. But growing up in Oklahoma... Uh, now living in Texas, one of the things that I encounter often when I meet new people and we're having a conversation for the first time is uh, they're going to get to know me a little bit as I tell them where I grew up and then they're going to typically respond with a couple of uh, things that I hear regularly. The first is, oh, I am so sorry. (laughs) OU is the worst. 
And to which my response is always, you are absolutely right. OU is the worst, uh, which is why I love living in Austin. I'm finding good company here. Uh, I'm an Oklahoma State Cowboy, so I hate OU, right? Uh, It's good and fair game. My orange is just brighter than yours. And so um, the second thing that typically happens, though, uh, is a response that comes forward to say, oh, so have you ever been in a tornado? And to which my response is no, but... That question is normal and fair game because, as you well know, like many places in Texas, central Oklahoma is known as Tornado Alley. Uh, Many of you know a few years ago the tornadoes that ripped through more Oklahoma uh, and the tragedy there just was horrific. Thousands of people uh, lost everything. The town was was not recognizable. Uh, Hundreds lost their lives and uh, just a horrific event. And and having grown up in Oklahoma, what's, uh, what's just amazing in some ways is... Every time we get hit by a tornado, it seems like Moore and South Oklahoma City are the same community that's hit all the time, and somehow they find a way just to rebuild themselves and, and move forward. But one of the things I always find fascinating uh, coming out of the aftermath of those events is the stories of people who, in the midst of all of it, were willing to risk their own life, uh, to put all of it on the line in the midst of all the wreckage, to, to try to save another, to try to to help the well-being and and the safety of someone else. And you hear stories of people all over the country who will drop everything and and come down to uh, the natural disaster uh, just to help the victims for a few days. Uh, These stories are are incredible, and they happen all the time in the face of crisis. And there's something about those moments where you don't even have to be a Christian. Something about those kinds of moments of crisis signal to us the worth and the value of life. Like, even without the knowledge of God, there's something about those moments where there's something that bears witness in our conscience about the dignity of life. And now, not all the time, right? There there are certainly times where we're numb to it and we don't respond uh, as we ought or as we, we do other times. But there are certainly other times where maybe the circumstances, you're not really sure to put a finger on it. But there are other times when you hear of things in crisis and of people affected where you're struck deeply. So you hear things like mass shootings or abuse or terrorism, injustice, the mistreatment of people. Very often you don't even have to know the people involved uh, for you to be affected by what you hear and what you see going on, right? In those moments there is something embedded in us, embedded in all people across all times and all places where we recognize the value of life. And there is something about those moments, again, where, where we see that somehow we're all wearing the same jersey. That no matter where you're from, we're sort of all in this together. And I see, I see something of myself when I look around at the people around me. All of us are sort of hardwired this way. And it's this way that we're shaped and this way that we're wired that God is addressing in the sixth command. God is taking something that has been generally revealed to all of us by our consciences. And now in the sixth commandment, he's addressing this with a special revelation. He's speaking to this general sense now with a special word, a defining word, about where the dignity of life is rooted and found and how then that should shape our lives together. So look back at verse 13, Exodus 20. Read it again. It says, you shall not murder. Pretty straightforward, pretty simple. I think most of us have heard this before, we've read this before, and we've probably moved on with our lives without thinking much about it. For many of us, the implications of this command are so obvious to us that 
we don't really feel a need uh, to do much more explanation. It seems, yeah, I, I totally get that. I, I don't have any problem with that. That's, that's an obvious sort of moral boundary, and we move on, right? I don't know many people in the room today are grappling with a deep temptation to murder someone. I don't think that's what's present in the room. And so very often we can read this command, and it seems so assumed, it seems so understood, that it needs no explanation, Almost as though for us we can read it and go, oh, so I guess the sermon is over right now. Band, why don't you come on back up and we'll just sing our songs of response and get on with Memorial Day weekend, right? It almost even seems a bit barbaric to bring it to attention. Like, like even as an insult to our own inherent sense of morality. And I think if we are honest, we, we read this sixth command and it doesn't carry with it the same kind of bite, that the other commands do. Commands that we might say deal with the more normal temptations. Temptations that are sort of caught up in the everyday flow of our lives. I know for me, even this week as I was studying to preach, I, it, was, it was easy to me, all too easy for me, to see this command as separated from my life in a kind of way where its only purpose was for me to have something there and in the Bible, for me to know how to deal with and to see people who cross this moral boundary. This obvious, this is, this is about other people out there, not the people I know, not me certainly. This is about other people out there that sort of have an issue with this moral boundary. But as the week wore on, as my study wore on, as my prayers increased, more true than I even realize, there is absolutely no distance at all from this command and me. There is absolutely no distance at all from you and this command. And the most dangerous thing for any of us today would be to move on with our lives and to see ourselves as beyond a need to apply this word. Because for you and I just to move on without any personal and serious reflection of what God is saying here is for you and I to think that we have a morality for ourselves and we have a righteousness for ourselves apart from God. It is just to say to God, yeah, I got that. I don't need your help here. This one is clear. I don't need your help there, God. To make his word somehow null and void. And when we do that, we end up mocking him as the keeper of our life. And so church, let's not move past the sixth command with a cavalier heart. The Hebrew word used here for murder refers to the taking of innocent life. And so even as I say that, I know that there are some of you who hear that and you've, you've already sort of got immediate questions popping up in your mind about, okay, so, does, so what does this mean about self-defense? Or what does this mean about capital punishment or gun control or just war theory? Or there, there could be a thousand ethical questions swirling about as you read this command and you hear what it refers to. But here's the thing. Those, those are some great questions and to which there are some really great answers But for me to work out all the ramifications of what's being spoken to in this command in one sermon would be impossible. And so I don't want to skirt those issues today. But what I do want to do is I want to speak directly to what I believe God is showing us about himself and why it is that he's given us this command. And the things that you and I deal with every single day. This is an everyday kind of command. And I want to address those kinds of issues. And so God gave us this command along with all the rest of the commands to show Israel and to show us just what kind of king he is and how different he is from Pharaoh. 
That, that his reign and what his rule looks like over our life has nothing to do with and looks entirely different from the way Pharaoh ruled and reigned. And he's trying to show his freed people how it is they ought to live with one another. Right? That, that he's not a kind of king where the people who live under his reign are subject to threats or fear of death. That's not the kind of king he is. All life under God's reign is to be cared for, is to be protected, is to be provided for. That's the kind of king he is, and his people should treat one another in the same way. But why? God is saying something in the sixth command both about himself and the dignity of all people. You see, no other king, no other ruler speaks this way. For every other kind of rule, uh, people are seen as commodities to their own advancement. Uh, people are seen as, as sort of only having worth based on what they mean to the king, what they mean for the platform, what they mean for the power, and how that can advance. And if there's any sense of worth, it's only what the king gives to them. But even on beyond that, if there's inherent worth, it's only for goodness sake, not for the sake of God. And so what God is saying here is something both about himself and who we are. And so the roots and principle of this command go back to the very, very beginning. And they're first mentioned in Genesis chapter 9. So after the great flood subsided and Noah and his family are taken back safely to dry land, God is sort of starting over with humanity. He's sort of reinstating humanity and he's beginning with Noah and his family. And so back in Genesis chapter 6, before the flood, before any of that happened, the reason that the Bible says God brought the judgment of the flood was because at that time the entire world, the entire earth, was filled with violence. So think about the first sin recorded after Adam and Eve ate the fruit. You remember? It had to do with their sons, Cain and Abel. Cain murdered his brother Abel out of jealousy. And then two generations later in Genesis chapter 5, we see Lamech committing double murder. And then onward down from there to Genesis 6, where the entire earth was filled with violence, and God brings the judgment of the flood. But in Genesis 9, where God is starting over with Noah and his family, just as soon as their feet hit dry ground, God is speaking words to them about how he wants them to be fruitful and multiply. And he also says these words in Genesis 9, verse 6. ...about where the dignity of all human life is defined and grounded. He says this. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Now again, there's, there's a ton of things we could talk about here based on what's being said. But notice where God places the reason and the emphasis for the dignity and value of all life. It's there at the end of the verse. He says, for God made man in his own image. Now this is huge for us. And hang with me. Because this is the key to understanding sort of who we are. Why we're wired the way we're wired. And why God is giving us the sixth commandment. You can't understand the sixth commandment if you don't understand the image of God. The reason that human life is so valuable, the reason it's so precious is because every human life has been knit together by God to be a representation of him. And so the reason that murder is so horrific is because it's an attack and an assault on one who bears the image of God and therefore an attack and an assault on God himself. And every one of us feel this and know this. Every one of us in the face of homicide, 
in the face of suicide. There is something deep down that resonates. It's not supposed to be this way. And even when we can't connect the dots back to the image of God, we resonate with that. The dignity of every person is directly connected to the dignity of their creator. And every person finds their beginning with God. Every person. And this stretches across racial boundaries and across economic lines. Murder is the arrogant subtraction of the display of the glory of God. It's the arrogant subtraction of the display of the glory of God. It is an assault on the dignity of the creator himself. And so to be made in the image of God, it means that God made us to be representations of him. It means that God made us to live lives to show what he is like and his character and his being. God made us to be images, to be icons, if you will, to be a kind of mirror, a kind of reflection. And now obviously with, with our lives having been broken by, by sin and our nature and our character being corrupt by sin, none of us are the kind of reflection of God that he designed us to be. But the Bible speaks very clearly here from Genesis chapter 9, a post-sin world, right? And a world where sin has already entered into the world. He speaks very clearly that his created purposes on us being image bearers, even though we're broken by sin, that those created purposes and the dignity of life have not been lost. Though our lives have been broken by sin, the image of God has not been destroyed. Though it's been distorted by sin, it has not been altogether lost. And so by God making us in his image, he's forever linked himself with humanity. So that whatever happens to us in some ways is happening to him. Now everyone who's a parent in the room understands this and knows this. Because if something happens to your child, it might as well have happened to you. Am I right? If someone says something hurtful to your child, if someone does something hurtful to your child, they may as well have just done that to you. Am I right? I know there's been moments on the playground where I've seen my five-year-old get pushed down by another kid, and there's been a reaction in me, oh, you want to push my daughter, huh? Praise God for restraining grace. I'll give you a taste of your own medicine. There's a way in which to, to offend our offspring, to offend someone who's a part of me, may, you may have well done it to me. Here's another way to think of it. If you were to walk into a room, and all around the room were, were just pictures of yourself, of your friends, of your family, and you noticed all the pictures, and, and then you got closer and you started noticing that every picture you're either ripped out, you're either cropped out, you're, you're marked out, or, or you've been mocked up to make, like, make look like something less than what's true of you. Every one of you would immediately see that and feel a sense of personal attack. Like this, this room and all these pictures, this, this has something to do with me. And, and you wouldn't feel so offended just because those pictures mean everything. No, the, you, are, you are more than the sum total of what's imaged in you in the pictures. Those images don't mean everything, but, they, but they're incredibly meaningful. You would feel attacked and personally offended because those pictures point to you. They have to do with you. And so this is exactly what God is saying to us, saying about us, and saying about himself, and why he's telling us to recognize that we've been made in his image. And so this is what is so remarkable about what God has given to us by sending his son Jesus. God has sent his son 
to undo the effects that sin has had on us and to restore the image that's been broken in us. And Jesus has come to accomplish this work for us. How? By taking on the very image himself. And so when Jesus took on humanity, God was making a declaration loud and clear. I haven't ejected on mankind. I haven't left you to yourself. When Jesus took on humanity by becoming one of us at every stage of human development, from from gestation to final stop, Jesus taking on every stage of development, he was communicating that God's plan for humanity and, and God's affirming purposes of the dignity of every person is still in play. Jesus joined us at every stage of human development, from fetus to embryo, to infant, to toddler, to preteen, to young adult, to man. He even acquainted himself with human suffering. And so when you see what God has done for us in his son by joining us in every stage of development, there is not a person in any stage of development that's expendable or dismissible. Any more than Jesus was expendable or dismissible. And so there's a passage of scripture that many of us are aware of, that many of us have quoted before, had quoted to us, that points directly to how it is that Jesus has linked himself to us and the way God has connected to us in our humanity. And it's in Matthew chapter 25. If you have a Bible, turn there. Again, the words will be on the screen. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 35. It says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. For I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And verse 40, and the king will answer them, truly I say to you, As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So Jesus is saying something here about the dignity of the poor and the marginalized. He's saying something here about the worth and the value of every person, regardless of where they are and their development. He's saying what you do when you serve the poor and the marginalized, you're serving me. Now, now you're actually serving that person too, but that person, because they bear the image of God, is so closely linked to Jesus that Jesus can actually say, you're serving me. And this dignity stretches across every skin color. It's not playing favorites with the rich. It's not removed from the poor. God shows no partiality. It's on the lives of the weak. It's on the lives of the strong. It's a level playing field for the beautiful and for the overlooked. You see, being knit together by the very hands of God himself brings a dignity to every person on the planet. And so now, because this is true, the sixth commandment, is about a lot more than just not committing the act of murder itself, huh? This is about a lot more than just not committing the act of murder. The issue of bearing the image of God is something that hits every single one of us to the core, especially in the society and world we live in today. 
We live in a current world where people are, are, are determined and judged as either expendable or dismissible based on what they can or cannot bring to the table. And so we feel this tension all the time in, in things like racial privilege. We feel this tension when it comes to the issue of the way that those who have disabilities are either dismissed or overlooked. To the decisions that are being made on whether or not to go through with a pregnancy based on whether or not that child will have Down syndrome or deformities. We live in a present culture where we are told from a thousand directions that our sum total is caught up in what we look like, what we're worth is caught up in what we look like, what we can produce for ourselves, and how much we can acquire. And anyone who stands in the way of you reaching your desired destiny or you fulfilling your dreams or you having the family that you want and it will look the way that you want it to, anyone who stands in the way of those things is expendable or dismissible. And it's one thing to see this in the world around us. But do we see this even happening in ourselves? Because every one of us do this. And regrettably, as I kind of searched my heart this week, I found it in too many places in me too. And so I just want to ask some questions for a second to help us kind of examine where we are. And I just want to speak honestly. So we're a church that's made up largely of white people. And every one of us have hidden dispositions toward those of other skin colors. Every one of us do. So the question I want to ask you is, do you treat black people differently than you treat white people? What about Asian people, Middle Eastern people, Hispanic people? Do you treat the poor different than you treat the rich? Do you give favoritism? What about your hotel maid? What about your waiter? Do you give them the same kind of respect that you would give your boss? Do you have fits of rage that people can't see? Do you find yourself walking away from conversations kind of just thinking about and fantasizing about telling people off? You see, every time we do this, every time I do this, there is an attack on the dignity of the creator God and an attack on the dignity of the person who's been made in his image. Every time. And so now, now, all the distance that we thought there was from the beginning when we looked at this command between ourselves and the command, now all of a sudden there's no gap at all. Every one of us stand here together. And the mentality that's present in our culture and our society is so far from the, the things that God is shaping for us in his word. And so this is why, church, this is why, the, this is why we long so badly to be a church that is for our city, that is known throughout our city as being for our city. You see, obedience to the sixth commandment is not just about not killing people. Obedience to the sixth commandment is giving all of your life for the flourishing of all life. So the command is do not murder, right? It's given to us in the negative. It's stated in the negative, but, but it's not only about not doing things. There's also something proactive about this command. And so what does proactivity look like in this command? It looks like seeking to honor and seeking the flourishing of everyone who bears the image of God. So this is why as a church, 
We care so much about adoption and foster care. This is why as a church, we work tirelessly with organizations like RBI Austin who serve to assist and to rehabilitate the the under-resourced children in our community and and oftentimes fatherless. This This is why we care so deeply about women who are in unexpected presidencies and giving a voice for the unborn. This is why our For the City network is partnering with over 140 organizations throughout our city who seek to serve the poor and the marginalized and rehabilitate and recalibrate lives for flourishing. This is why there are opportunities being formed right now by our For the City network to get actively involved in the fight against labor and sex trafficking in our city. And so even as I mention some of these, does something strike you? Is there a passion you have for one of these efforts, one of these ministries that you've been thinking about for a while but you've just been putting off? Maybe you don't know anything about these opportunities that are present in the life of our church or you don't know anything about the issues. And maybe my challenge to you would be consider getting informed. Because listen, church, when the word of God comes forward, negligence has to be off the table for us. It has to be off the table. So we want to be a church that recognizes the image of God swirling all around us. We want to be a people who labor for the greatest possible flourishing, who work for the greatest possible flourishing, and all kinds of people for the greatest possible display of the glory of God in every image bearer in our city. And so the sixth commandment, There are all sorts of implications on our social and ethical and political life. But it's also true that this sixth commandment, as we close this morning, hits every one of us at the level of the heart. You see, when Jesus shows up on the scene, he's not after behavioral modification and external religion. He's not after just your activism. He's after the condition of your heart. Jesus has a way of taking these commands and pressing them inward onto our hearts. And so this is why he says in 1 John 3.15, so plainly, so matter-of-factly this, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Every one of us stand condemned here. Every one of us. So the response to the sixth commandment isn't to try to justify yourself and go, yeah, but I'm not that bad. There are people who say some stuff. Our response to the sixth commandment isn't to sort of work up some claim for our innocence. Our response to the sixth commandment is to confess and admit our guilt and beg God for a new heart. That's the response. But good for us that God does not leave us with, Gen- or with 1 John 3.15. He follows that with 1 John 3.16. Look at verse 16. It says, by this we know love. That he laid his life down for us. And we ought to lay our lives down for the brothers. And so Jesus has not come onto the scene to do away with the law. To do away with the sixth commandment. To lessen the sixth commandment. Jesus has come onto the scene to fulfill the sixth commandment. By making a way for lawbreakers like you and me. 
God had every right and every authority to send his son into this world to pronounce a judgment on us for being image destroyers. He had every right. And yet, he sent his son, the perfect image of God, into this world, not to take our lives, but to lay his life down for us, to die a death reserved for murderers, reserved for image destroyers, that we might be released from our sins, that our debt might be paid, that we might no longer be held under the condemnation of breaking the sixth commandment, but we would be given the righteousness of law keepers and be conformed into that righteousness. Jesus has not come to take your life He's come to fulfill the sixth commandment to the fullest that he laid his own life down that you might flourish in every way before God with everything you need for life and godliness. And so then the verse goes farther and it says, so we ought to lay our lives down for the brothers. And so husbands, what would it look like for you to begin to set aside your comforts and your preferences for the flourishing of your wife. Parents, what would it look like for you to set aside your agendas and all your plans for having your family look a certain way and and all of your comforts for engaging on your iPhone at times to put those things down, lay your own comforts down for better engagement and flourishing of your children. Students, what would it look like for you to lay down your own life and your your preferences toward popularity and social comforts for the inclusion of others and the flourishing of those around you. For every one of us, what would it look like for you to begin to lay down your life for the flourishing of those around you in your neighborhoods, in your offices, in our city? See, my prayer for us as a church, the prayer of our leadership for us as a church is that we would be a colorful people. We want to be a colorful people celebrating the creativity of God through all kinds of diversity. We want to be a church who has our hearts broken and shattered and put back together with the heart of Jesus to be the hands of Jesus serving the poor and the marginalized. Because it's true the voice of Jesus in the scriptures. Truly I say to you, whatever you do to one of these, the least of these, my brothers... You've done it to me. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word this morning. God, thank you for your son, Jesus, that we no longer stand under the condemnation of lawbreakers, as lawbreakers. But because you came and you bore a death for those Reserved, the death that was reserved for lawbreakers, we now get to live a life with the benefits of your righteousness and known before God as a law keeper. Jesus, thank you for your life, your death, your resurrection that purchased our debt. And God, would you, would you please, would you make us a church that isn't just broken in heart or empathetic in heart, but that's moved to action? Would we see the way that you laid your life down for us? And would we be moved now to lay our lives down for the flourishing of life? Would your kingdom come? A mark of your kingdom is the flourishing of people. That's, that's what your kingdom looks like. And so would your kingdom come and would your will be done in Austin and in our church just like it's going on up in heaven? 
Would we seek to bring as much resurrection, as much rehabilitation, as much flourishing as you would allow us before you return? God, would you move us to live lives that would, that would be the fruit of, of, of being a seamless transition, as seamless as possible from this life on into your new kingdom? We want to seek flourishing like that. God, we love you. And thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, let's stand and sing.